Welcome to Gone Fishing, a show diving into cybersecurity threats that surround our highly connected lives. Every human is different. Every person has unique vulnerabilities that expose them to potentially successful social engineering. On this show, we'll discuss human vulnerability and how it relates to unique individuals. I'm Connor Swalm, CEO of FinSecurity, and welcome to Gone Fishing. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Gone Fishing. I'm your host, Connor CEO at Finn, and I'm joined once again by Kyle Christensen from Empath. Kyle, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Fantastic. So much time, yet so little to do. Wait. <laughs> Usually those two things are reversed, right? Oh, it's one of my favorite quotes from Willy Wonka. I think I can't, I, I, I can't remember. I just say it every day at this point. I wish, uh, I wish that were the case. Well, maybe not. Maybe I'd get bored to tears if there weren't stuff to do. Right. <laughs> maybe. For um, folks, if you haven't watched the last episode, we introduced Kyle. We talked about executive coaching. Kyle's past not only being coached, but being a coach. And today we're talking about operational maturity for MSPs. And we we're actually riffing about this before we realized we hadn't started the episode. But now yes. here we are. So well, Kyle, now you get a second swing when I ask you the question, Connor. What is operations? What is operational maturity to you? Operational maturity. So I'll, I'll define it in the exact same way. It is when you make decisions for the second, third, and fourth order consequences of your decisions, not the one that's immediately in front of your face. Uh, and the example I gave was, you know, you talked about service delivery in the last episode, and that's the real product of an MSP. And my statement was, whenever you purchase tools, whenever you decide to create a new stream of revenue, do you think about what is the transformation I'm giving to my clients? What is the service I'm delivering that's helping them create a better uh, outcome for themselves? Because you're buying tools because people told you to, or you're buying into a product category because you think you should. You haven't gone through, how does this actually impact my customer in X, Y, and Z ways? You're, you're not. You're not making that decision in a mature fashion in my mind. Yep. It's, uh, so there was a point in time in my life where I got obsessed with finding the source material for everything in a little book called Traction. Gino was, I went to dinner with him in 2013, 14, Gino Wickman, and I, I kind of started to pick his brain like, hey, where did you find the idea for this? Because in the book, he's pretty open. Like it's just a toolbox, right? He found a bunch of cool things and forced them together. And the one thing he never told me, and I was obsessed with finding it, is where he got the idea for this integrator, right? The COO, chief of staff, CEO in some instances, where does this come from? And I finally found it in a Harvard Business Review article from the 60s called The Integrative Business Model. And what the, the article actually talked about was at some level in your business, you need to have someone integrating all of the facets of your organization and that it either needs to be an individual or, and this was the thing that like blew my mind because it's not mentioned anywhere in any of these books, an integrative department, something that holds, that's the glue between everything in your organization. Like for you, Connor, right? With a SaaS company, right? It's the dev team, it's the customer service teams, it's the sales teams, it's the R&D stuff. Something has to communicate between those departments to make sure everyone is rolling in the same direction, right? That everyone is heading and not building like the tree in my backyard where there's a branch literally going in the wrong direction. It makes no sense and it's ugly as hell, but I let it keep going because I'm just like, I want to see where this goes. You can't have that in your business because that tree branch, as it gets longer, you're spending money that has not a single dollar of ROI headed towards you. So when you have this integrative business model, what, and this I think comes full circle to what operational maturity is, 
everyone is rowing in the same direction towards the same goal for the same outcome because we all have both a strategy and a discipline that makes us conform to those goals. Yeah. How does that relate to operational maturity? How does that relate to operational <laughs> maturity? How does this integrator do that? Well, and I, well, whether it's an integrator, a department, like, like I found in the Harvard Business Review article, it's when I go, hey, what is operational maturity? It's the business understands that it's a funnel. And that funnel is very simple. You need to find work, you need to do work, and that gets you paid, right? That, that, that's all your business is at the end of the day. Now, there's also this thing called R&D, and I could talk about this all day long, but as long as we are finding ways to put customers in the top and collect profit on the bottom, then and we are making that a seamless process, that to me is operational maturity, that we are building a product that allows more customers to come in and profit to come out because we, at the end of the day, we are not nonprofits. I know a lot of MSPs listening, you operate as a nonprofit, but it, it, that we have to overcome this idea that we, we are a cash flow organization. So when I think operational maturity, I think you are proactively making decisions to enhance that cash flow in order to hit goals for both the customer, the employee, and the owner. So where this sometimes is a, is a friction point or a bottleneck is those questions of, well, I don't like, you see it on Reddit all the time, right? Oh, my owner is just trying to squeeze every last penny out of me. Well, if I run the business in a manner to where I have to squeeze every ounce of profitability out of you because we're either inefficient in delivering service, right? The middle of the funnel. We're bad at finding new clients that can pay us appropriate prices, that top of the funnel. Or three, we don't have budgets to constrain us to delivering services at the right price for the right margin for the right salaries. Then yeah, at the bottom of the funnel, we're going to lose all of that when, like you mentioned, and I don't know if it was on this episode or the last episode, I've forgotten at this point because I went and bought a bunch of widgets and doohickeys for R&D for a product that I still don't even understand to begin with. So when I can remove those barriers, and I've seen MSPs do this extremely well, you can build an environment where it's win-win-win. The customer wins because the product's the right price and has the right features. The employee wins because you're paying them fairly and giving them a percentage of the spoils. And the owner wins because your organization is now running in the same direction with you, which gets you maximum profitability, which is a valuation conversation, right? Now my business is less risky. I have less cash that I have to worry about when payroll comes up. So to me, that sums up operational maturity. And I don't know if I, if I went on a tangent there, Connor, please help steer me a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah. No, I think that's uh, an in-depth understand. You know, I've always thought of, you know, even e like, I don't know if it's uh, like business models such as EOS or like frameworks and operational maturity is this incredibly, uh, it's like a fog that rolls in. You're like, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to define this. It looks different at every single company. The way I've always thought about it is it's like top down versus bottom up thinking is a phrase that a lot of people have or problem solving. But I think of it on like a scale from left to right, where right is there's money in our bank account because we did something and left is idea. It's like, I have an idea for something. It's like, well, if you start at the right side, it's like, how is the money in our bank account? And you work back, you'll probably arrive at a way better idea. But what I see a lot of people doing, um, whether it's trying to launch new services or whether it's just trying to do their job, like they have a, they're an accountant at a company and they need to do accounting work. I'm not an accountant. So that's as specific as I'll get on what accounting work really means. They start with the idea and they try to force that to the bank account. 
Whereas if you just started the bank account, it's like, all right, well, if we did this for our client, they would definitely pay us for that. And if you don't believe it, go ask them. That's how entrepreneurs start their lives. It's like, hey, if I did this, would you pay me for it? Like, hell yeah, I'd give you money for that. It's like, I'll be back. Give me a second. It's like, then you go work out. I was like, what's the idea that I need that, that got me to the thing the person just told me they'd pay me for? That's kind of how I view um, at least maturity and decision making. And, you know, once you've started a business, once the boulder's rolling down a hill, once you have people in places doing things consistently that lead to outcomes, then it becomes about, you know, turning the knobs and twisting the dials and saying, all right, well, what do we need more of? What should we do less of? And, you know, that's a really good place to be. Well, and Jim Collins has a fantastic little quick read about his concept called the flywheel. You read Good to Great, he has this concept called the hedgehog model. It gets a lot more in detail, but the whole idea is like the teacups at Disneyland. That first spin is going to be tough. That second spin is going to be a little less tough. That third spin is going to be even less tough. And it gets to the point where I can barely touch the wheel and the teacup will spin and actually pick up perpetual motion, right? It starts to spin faster and faster and faster. When your organization can figure out how that wheel can spin and get through that tough part, I think that's when the consultant, uh, going back on our last episode, that accidental entrepreneur, evolves from a consultant to an entrepreneur to a business owner, right? Because now they understand, hey, my business only has three or four levers that as an owner, I need to pull, which is what is the direction that we are going and how much money am I willing to spend to get there? And we, you have to juggle out those two KPIs and they're very important because going to do's and don'ts of operational maturity, one of the big don'ts is you see these frameworks, right? There's plenty of them out there. And you go, we're going to copy paste that. And you copy paste that and have all, reg- you have no regard for what the cost of that implementation is or the time that, I mean, time is a cost, but right, the time that it's going to take you to get there. And what happens? Well, your growth and your cash flow now get constrained because you stop growing your organization. I see this in MSPs all the time. They'll focus on OML, they'll focus on EOS, they'll focus on scaling up, whatever it is, and they're not growing at the same time. So you're increasing costs to an extent, right? Because now you're providing more labor to operationally mature your company with either the same or slightly less revenue, because I hate to say it, churn happens in your business, whether you want to be ignorant to it or not. So the only way now to balance out your margins is you actually have to eliminate cost while you're operational maturing. So the only way in most MSPs where our biggest cost center is, is employees. So if you want to not grow revenue, but in, but increase operational maturity and maintain margin on the bottom line, you have to fire employees to get there. Would I rather fire employees or would I rather grow and mature at the same time to grow into that further capacity? I think that's a question that tells me more about your psychology than <laughs> do I, some people take, uh, some people take pride in it. It's a weird thing, but well, I, I, I would love for you to elaborate a little bit on that. Actually. I, um, if you want, if you want to make decisions with operational maturity, it's really just two things over and over again, set a goal and be ruthless about cutting out activities that don't contribute to it. Like to the extent of, and it's like, so if you feel that way, it's like, let's say you're a business owner, you're listening to this podcast and you're like, all right, I am that way. I tell people they can't do things and they need to stop and they need to start doing this. It's like, you are one person. How many employees do you have? Are your employees acting this way on their own? Are your managers, are your mid middle managers? If the answer is, I don't know, then you can assume the answer is no, it's like pretty much. So it's like, how, uh, y- this is like a, 
this is a thought process. This is a culture problem that you need to instill in everyone in your company. And it's like every time you gather around a campfire or to grab a cup of coffee or do anything as a group, anytime you have more than one person together in a room, what are the activities we're talking about that we believe do contribute to our goal? And what are the ones that we believe don't? And you need to get ruthless. You need to get offensive. If people don't leave meetings being slightly ticked off, you didn't, you didn't talk about enough of the truth. It's because trust me, there's enough people in your business. There's enough varying opinions on what to do and what not to that. If somebody's not pissed, you didn't talk about the right things. That's that's I've seen that to be true. Well, or most MSPs, they run such thin capacity management. What do I mean by that? That there's not much extra time that your employees have to just go do extra stuff, right? I mean, go look at most average utilization numbers in help desk, right? They're in that 85, 90, 95 percentile. That means I only have three, four hours a week to go to the bathroom, to take notes, to do any extra type of stuff. Yeah. So one of the do's is if you're trying to really hammer towards growing yourself in a maturity framework, you have to invest into some capacity to get there. Someone needs to own this as a project to be at the helm of, are we meeting these maturity markers? Now, that's an investment into your company. So if we're doing this from a cash flow perspective, you're cutting into the bottom line or into your savings account. So that's where I think, Connor, you're kind of hitting the ball on the head of if I'm truly serious about this, I need to invest in it, which means as an owner, I do need to have this return on investment, ROI, uh, on the other side and recognize this should get me to better salary dollars per revenue or whatever, whatever way yeah. you measure efficiency, right? Help desk hours per customer. What there, There's plenty of ways to look at this. Well, there's only three ways to do that, too. You can cut output that you think you don't need, add resources such as hiring more people or increase efficiency. And that third one, Reg Harnish has a quote that I absolutely love. And you've heard Reg say it. I've heard Reg say it. It's the only thing automation allows us to do is do shitty things faster. It's like, if you don't have a process that's worth automating, if you don't have service delivery, if, you don't, if you're not doing something that's worth continuing to do, don't think that efficiency, making that more efficient is going to do any good for you or your company. Well, if I got obsessed earlier with looking at where automation came from, right? It came from manufacturing. It was, hey, if I'm producing a million of these units, how do I make these million units for one penny less? And that saves me a million pennies. It was never built as a way to grow the manufacturing. It was built as a way to enhance the margin of that with ex right. ex extreme uh, investments. So I was listening to Joe Rogan a, a couple months ago and he was on with Elon Musk, making fun of Elon Musk because, oh, dude, you announced the Cybertruck like five years ago. How come it never came out? And he goes, well, the prototype was the easiest thing in the world to build. And I think as MSPs, we are great at building prototypes because it's a shiny thing that I can instantly get my hands on and instantly get one or customer, two customers to buy. However, what he says is manufacturing is the most difficult part of the Cybertruck. I got to make sure there's consistency in all the panels that are stamped. There's consistency on how the wheels are manufactured by an outsourced manufacturer. Right. He goes into all of these levels because when I'm producing millions of these things, I got to make sure everything comes off the line at the same quality. And I also have to sell enough of these to pay for all of the tooling that we've invested in. Well, as MSPs, we get to MVP stage to use a SaaS term, minimally viable product. And then we let our hands off the wheel and never get into what Agile would call product market fit stage to say, have we figured out a customer acquisition cost? Have we figured out our cost per lead? Have we figured out how to deliver this with minimal churn? Right. All, and, and I know you're rolling your eyes because I'm not an expert by all means in MVP and you probably are. 
but we don't go into that iterative improvement of our product. We just go to the next product. Yeah. So we have a bunch of demos and R&D and yeah. a bunch of MVPs laying around our MSP. There's this very delicate balance between releasing something that's half-baked enough that you get all of the feedback you need to finish it versus we made too many assumptions. We made this not minimally viable. We built this thing without enough feedback, without enough iteration, because we thought we needed it to be more complete before we launched it. Both ends of the spectrum are really bad, right? You need to be somewhere in the middle, which is I launched this with just enough that people saw the promise, gave us the feedback, and we could iterate quick enough to end up moving forward. Oh, and then as a last point, this is where you see in the MSP zeitgeist right now, you need to charge three, four, five hundred dollars per month. Well, because you're giving all your clients a prototype that's never been efficiently scaled. Yeah. And really, the whole idea of attaining a target market is market share, right? Big companies understand market share. And that market share typically means your price should go down at scale because you're so good at delivering it so that more people want to buy it so you can enhance your client profile market share. And I don't see enough MSPs talking about that of how do we deliver our current product for less so I can sell more of it. Right. For folks who wanted to connect with you or Empath, where would you suggest they do that? Yeah, easily. EmpathMSP.com is where you can go see all the educational goodness we're bringing the community. And then hit me up on LinkedIn if you just want to have a chat because I could talk about this stuff all day long. Awesome. I would love that. Folks will have connections to everything Kyle just mentioned so you can connect with him or uh, you can look up EmpathMSP.com and connect with the folks over there as well. Thanks so much for watching, Kyle. Thanks for being here. It was a blast chatting with you. See you next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about creating high-quality security awareness training campaigns that engage employees and change their habits, then check out FinSecurity at phinsec.io or click the link in our show notes. Thanks for fishing with me. See you next time.